So cliches can have power when they're rooted in your values and your missions, but so all that coming around is that cliches can also be very dangerous because they're very vague. You're listening to In the Hour with Lolly Daskal and Jared Nichols. Good morning, Lolly. Good morning, Jared. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good because I'm especially excited about today's topic. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm good. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you, we just before we started recording, I said, "So what?" Uh, so we're talking about leadership cliches today and you said yeah that's the topic you want to talk about and i kicked it back and i said well it was the topic you had on the list i just picked it i rolled the dice so but no we've actually given more thought to this topic than just randomly picking it or pulling it out of thin air uh this can be a lot of fun i'm gonna try and hold back from going on a lot of crazy rants so since this was originally your idea and i just happened to select it why don't you start us off set the stage a little bit So I was going to say, I kind of live all the cliches as a coach working with my clients. There are many things that people say and they think it's very effective. They think that people are going to be inspired. People are going to be empowered by them. But actually, I'm not so sure it works. I'm a big believer. If you want to say something, say it how it is instead of using a cliche to get your point across. I have a client actually, which will go nameless that in one conversation with him, one coaching conversation, I sometimes for fun just silently count how many cliches he uses. Half the time I have no clue what he means. And I'll say, can you please clarify what you're trying to say? Because there's certain cliches that people use that is something maybe they picked up in college, something they've said with friends, and it stays with them. And they think everybody understands what it means, but they don't. And, and I kind of, and when I first started to coach um, this one particular person, I said, every time you use a cliche, I'm going to have you drop money into a bucket, and then we're giving it to charity. Um, I stopped that you after three years, joy. but maybe I... Yeah. Oh, man. Well, okay. Can we just... So... Can you share one of you? No, one of because these, well, no, that's yeah, yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah, you gotta it's stop very, setting up and telling us about your clients because then you can't reveal these great cliches because then they're gonna know when they listen to the show that you're talking about them. How about this? I will incorporate it into our conversation without calling them out because that's fair. Well, of course, definitely. And by the way, for any of Lolly's clients that are listening, Lolly never badmouths you outside of this show or on this show. She always speaks very highly, and I don't know who any of you are. She does not reveal who you are. So just to reiterate that, she is very professional about that, and I do appreciate that uh, she tries to protect your identity through you know habits and cliches that maybe you you may uh, indulge in. So there. Absolutely. That's my job. (laughs) All right. So continue on. Continue on here. So there are many, many popular cliches that leaders um, say, or they think they need to be. So this is a conversation about two things. Number one is what do they say? That's a cliche. And number two, what is it they think they need to be? A leadership cliche. And I want to go to the latter first, and then we'll go into the little nuances, because frankly, there could be a list of hundreds of that, a hundred of little cliche sayings. The biggest cliche that people have is that the leader has to be the smartest person in the room, and they have to have all the answers. Mm. That's not true. Right. Because 
if you are, and trust me, here goes another client story. One of my clients is usually the smartest person in the room and is the person that has all the answers. And I constantly have to say to him, do not be the first person who jumps in and says what needs to be said. Give people a chance to voice their opinion. So it goes both ways, right? Don't be the smartest person in the room, even though you are. And a leader doesn't have to have all the answers. I think the best leaders are the ones that ask great questions, even though they have the answer, like a coach. A coach knows where they want to take their client, but they never say to their client, do this because you'll get this result. They ask a client questions in order to get that client to feel very empowered and very smart about who they are and what they know, and they bring them to where they need to get to. And this is something we actually talked about on another podcast. But I think what's important here is to remember, if you are a leader, learn to ask questions, stay curious, be open-minded, that you learn more than when you started that meeting or that conversation. So I always, I'm always uh, curious as to where cliches come from, right? <clears throat> like uh, the history of things. Part, you know, part of it is I, I just love history because context. I love context. So. As a futurist, I look towards the future and say, how do we create a future context so we can make better decisions? Same very much with looking at history. How do we better understand the decisions that were made? Well, cliches fall into that as well. So this cliche of be the smartest person in the room, do you know, where, did, where, did, where did that originate from? It had to have some specific, like where did it, where did it come from? It's a great question. It's a great thought. Well, can we just say that uh, I ask great questions? Can you go and and tell can, me, this is the part where you tell me I'm brilliant. Do you? I'll I'll tell you brilliant if you have an answer. Mm. Well, but then I would be violating the "don't be the smartest person in the room" principle. So I guess we're at an impasse. So yeah, I guess we'll never know. So anybody listening, if you know where that cliche comes from, please do tell. All right. So can we also add into this conversation not just cliches, but. Uh, sayings or words that are commonly used in business we can do that if okay. you want we'll get i to mean the, there's hundreds of them right there are things yeah. that i don't know if you remember this but for a while every time somebody spoke they used the word viral right let it go viral uh -huh. let this viral let this conversation be viral let this post be viral let this product go viral i believe you said oh that to me in a text the other day about something we were creating you said approve let's let's let it go viral so i think you you did that too <laughs> let it let it rip let that's it rip a, that's me <laughs> i think jack said viral i said let it rip <clears throat> that's what i say um but i think that there are things that pete you know that where did the cliche come from the leader needs to be smartest in the room i think things become popular people attach themselves to a certain saying because it moves them or it's powerful for them, or it's meaningful for them, and then they repeat it, um, right? And so I think that's how cliches start. It's something that made sense at one time, but it's grown old, and it doesn't really work anymore. And because it worked at one, at one time, doesn't mean it's always gonna work. And we have, as leaders, we have to evolve, and we have to be agile to know when to stop using the word viral and when to stop thinking we need to be the smartest in the room yeah well i think you bring a good you, so you took that in a good direction i like that uh about where do cliches come from and this 
this process of repeating things over and over again actually is rooted in a, in a very good practice if it's intentional. And that good practice is that when you have the culture of your organization that is rooted in your values, is rooted in uh, what your overall mission is, when you have deduced it, <clears throat> excuse me, reduced it down to a very simple, which would become a cliche, or a very simple statement that everybody adheres to, then it can have a lot of power. But if that statement no longer reflects the values or the mission or what's true about the organization, then it has the opposite effect and demotivates, uh, it becomes, it creates a lot of cynicism and so on. So I think, you know, it was, I'm glad you took that to, instead of just saying, what's the origins of this one cliche? It's what, you know, let's talk about cliches. Why are they there? They do have power. There's a reason there's, they're a cliche because they meant something at some point in time and, uh, I would like to make sure we cut out time to talk about how do you and why maybe you should create your own cliches for your organization if they are in line with who you are. Um, if we have time. If, yes. If time. So basically what you're saying is, is okay, let me say this because he likes when I say this. You're brilliant. Oh, because thank you, thank you so cliche. much, everybody. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you know. <laughs> Oh, you're having fun, Lolly. This is great. Go ahead. Continue on. Because yeah, I think I'm going to get serious. You know, I'm the serious gal here. But totally. if you talk about cliches, right, they were once fresh. They yeah. did work. The bottom line, they're outdated. They don't work anymore. And we have to know when to stop them. And it goes to the phrases. It oh, I lost you there. Lolly, you still goes to Hold on a second. We, we just had a little I'm hiccup. Still you were talking about so let's let's uh, let's pick that up for anybody who's listening. We of course having to do this virtually makes it a little extra difficult. But Lolly, pick up on what you were just saying about uh, cliches being outdated. But and then we we froze. Right. So I think cliches used to be a fre something fresh, a fresh idea, something that worked. But when they become outdated, we have to learn to stop saying those cliches. We have to know the difference of when they work and when they don't work. We have to know when we need to stop saying some of those things that don't really work. And the thing is, a cliche could be a thought, a mindset that you say, and it, it doesn't a saying, a phrase. And I want to break some of them down because I think that's what's very important. And maybe talk about what to say instead, or maybe things have evolved. And what can we do that gets the message across, the communication more direct? That we have people feeling and thinking what we want them to feel instead of saying things in a roundabout way. Sure. All right. So let's break one down. So let's talk about this one. I hear this a lot. I have leaders that say, I will take care of everything. Now, what the hell does that mean? I will take care of everything. A leader is someone who inspires others to do great work. If you're doing everything, what is everybody else supposed to do? It sounds great. It sounds fantastic. But is it even inspiring? Is it even motivating? I don't think so. And how do you, how do you teach people to follow you or to learn or to evolve and develop if you're doing everything, if the buck stops with you? Another cliche. So that, right? Nice. And that's something I say, which I have to stop because Love it's that. not fresh. Or and it's outdated. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think it's very important that as a great leader to stop saying, I will take care of everything. What do you think? Yeah. So that, that's one right there. Um, I didn't, I don't even think about it as a cliche. This is how bad. So I'm guilty of that. I will, uh, when I've hired folks to, you know, even in just technical stuff, design work, social media, content, I am so, <laughs> I'm so guilty of this. When I say I'll take care of it, what I'm really saying is you're not fast enough to keep up. What I'm really saying is I don't trust you with this work. What I'm, that's really ultimately what I'm saying is I don't trust you to do it right and you're not fast enough. And that I, as when I'm saying I'll take care of it, what I'm really thinking to myself is, look, speed is, is the most important thing in my mind when it comes to me hiring somebody to help to eliminate certain you know, time and tasks that I put energy into. But ultimately, I end up screwing myself over because I will go back and it's not the way that I want it done. And this is not the fault of the other person. I mean, yes, there are certain competencies and whatnot that need to be there. But I will default to – there's just a lot that I have to let go of, which comes back to this. I will take care of everything. I need to take care of what I need to take care of. But the main thing I need to do if I'm running an organization – which again, you know, it's funny because I've never worked for corporate America. I have plenty of clients that are executives in corporate America, but again, they don't hire me to become a better corporate citizen. So I'm not, I'm saying that to preface what I'm about to say. I'm not saying this from experience of running an organization with a bunch of people. But if I am, if, because just the human dynamic, uh, the best teams are the ones where the people, as you were saying, are empowered to do their job. You know, another cliche that ties right into this, Lolly, is, uh, um, you know, fail and fail fast, or that, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to fail. Well, anytime we have those things, it's like, you need to specify, because some stuff, you know, I mean, because a leader, especially, you have to be okay that if the ball is dropped, uh, if you're in the service sector, I mean, geez, you know, it's these tenuous relationships or the stress, like, oh, my God, if something goes wrong with one of your clients, it's like the end of the world. So you have a hard time telling your people, hey, look, if you make a mistake, it's okay. We can fix it. So we have to really get specific. we got to move away. So cliches can have power when they're rooted in your values and your missions. But So all that coming around is that cliches can also be very dangerous because they're very vague. And it can become a great way to avoid being specific about what it is that you want somebody to do. So fail and fail fast. Like, well, okay, around what? New product development? Sure. About <clears throat> a strong client relationship? Probably not. Like, let the people who have that relationship take that one. Don't fail on that one, right? I mean, am I wrong? How, how would you, I think it needs to be specified. It's very interesting what you're saying because I was thinking of a cliche that's just the opposite. Failure is never an option. How many times have I heard leaders say, failure is never an option? Hmm. Well, yeah. if you don't have failure, how do you learn? And what does that mean you can't fail. It shuts down from taking risk, which we always talk about, right? Yeah. And it yeah. shut, and it prevents asking questions. And what happens is if failure is not an option, then most people end up defending their mistakes. They don't move forward. It doesn't encourage debate. It doesn't answer hard questions. And people avoid failure. So then it brings us to your cliche fail and fail fast who's who sets the timetable who's <laughs> yeah <clears throat> exactly yeah 
Be specific. Well, well, failures can be epic, but you can learn, right? There's an opportunity from failures. And so the that's what I'm saying. All of this is it's so important to be more direct in what you want to say. So if you if for you you mentioned that fail and fail fast. Well, what is I think a leader, uh, individuals, bosses, CEOs, whoever you are leading others, when you say something, make sure to specify like Jared said, what is it you mean? And don't talk in superlatives because people have no clue what that means. You know, what 110%? But that's not even accurate. Yeah, what is 100%? No such thing, right? So you give 100%. Are you trying to say go the extra mile? Well, guess what? Jared has a thing about saying go the extra mile, another oh. cliche. <clears throat> We've learned that on the other podcast. So <laughs> be more direct. And in what you want to say and what you want to achieve, because then I think we can get people getting going in the places that we want them to go. And you become a better leader by communicating clearly what you want. Oh, so you opened up a can there for me, Lolly. So number one, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but no, you and I just had that conversation about the go the extra mile and turn the other cheek. We had that conversation offline. That was just us. So, you know, I would love to share <clears throat> where those are rooted because it does come back to this idea of understanding where cliches come from. Because I think we can learn a lot about what was the original intent in the context of this cliche to help us better understand the way to use it. Because you can revive things. You can bring life back into something if it's properly understood and it's no longer just a, oh, that's just a cliche that we say, right? Um, so... I'm going to go ahead and, and break these two down because I think these are really these are two of my favorites. So, as Lolly knows from our own conversations, um, and and for those of you who are just getting to know me here, so I studied history in my undergraduate program, history and English creative writing, and um, and then I studied future studies and strategic foresight in my graduate program. So the ongoing joke is that I have a really difficult time with the present. I'm just letting that one land for a minute. <laughs> so. So anyway, <clears throat> excuse me for all this. Anyway, <clears throat> so let's break down these, these two cliches. One of my favorite time periods in history is the early first century. And, <clears throat> and studying, uh, you know, in a non-religious context, I mean, you know, but studying the early first century church, uh, studying, you know, historical figures like Paul or Jesus or any of these folks and better understanding what was going on because the Western version of these stories has been distorted in such a way that you really lose a lot of the power in the context of, of how unique these situations were. Well, a couple of great cliches that come out of uh, things that Jesus was, uh, that were attributed to Jesus, two of them are go the extra mile. Uh, the other one is turn the other cheek. So we'll talk about go the extra mile first. We hear this all the time. And the general idea is that when you're asked to do something, go the extra mile, do it more, give more than you're asked. That's a good principle. Sure, I get it. But it is taking the uh, cliche completely out of context. What Jesus was actually telling his followers in that example was based on Roman law at the time. And so the Romans, and I may be getting some of this, <clears throat> the specifics messed up here, but the, the general idea was this, is that Rome was very much, they conquered and dominated so many different lands. And they believed themselves to be the beacon of 
uh, of uh, the civilized world, and they were going to make the world Rome. They wanted to bring civilization and government and their way of doing things to the rest of the world. And so it was ingrained in their people, the citizens, especially the military, those who are on the front lines, is that you model the principles of Rome. And they had very strict rules for how their, their soldiers could interact with subjugated peoples. And one of those was that you could only have a person who is a part of a, a land that you've conquered, a subject in that land, carry your gear, your pack, for one mile. If they carried it, if you as a soldier had them carry it beyond that mile, then you would be subject to flogging. You would be beaten because you were violating the principles of Roman law. So when Jesus said, if somebody, if, if a soldier asked you to carry his pack for a mile, carry it an extra mile, he wasn't saying, hey, just, you know, let's shame your enemies into seeing how good of workers were. No, he was, he was inciting civil disobedience. He said, I'm going to use their law against them. They will be screaming and begging you to give that pack back after you take one step beyond that mile. Don't give it to them. Keep on going. And they will get beaten. So that's number one. Brings whole new light to go the extra mile. I mean, honestly, we should do a whole podcast about what a badass and rebel Jesus was because he is not this friendly, fluffy character that a lot of people think. He was very much a, like, hey, let me give you some quick tips without using violence and uh, we can destroy some things. So here's the other one. Turn the other cheek. Another part of the Roman law as well in, uh, and in that time period was how you, as barbaric as this, how you struck somebody in the face. So if I were to strike you in the face, um, let's see, what does he say? Turn, so we have to get the left and right here. I'm a left-handed person, so I always get these wrong. But if I'm punching with the right hand, I'm usually going to hit somebody on the left side of their face. Yes, that's what it is. He said, if they strike you on your right, I believe this is, if they strike you on the right side of your cheek, give them the left. That's what it is. Because the vast majority of people during that time and still today are right-handed. And so when, if you got struck on the right side of the face, it's a very good chance that you were struck with the back of somebody's hand, which was a sign that you were subservient to that person. So when Jesus tells them to give them the left, he is saying force them to hit you with an open palm or with a, you know, hit you like from that side where it's not the back of their hand, because then you are telling them that you were not beneath them. Force them to hit you as an equal. That's the whole point of turning the other cheek. It was not, hey, take a beating and you will be rewarded. It's, hey, use their rules against them. And so that's it. So those are two powerful cliches. That was a long, exhaustive story, but I think it at least, you know, it helps us to suss out the importance of understanding where cliches come from. Absolutely. I found that to be very, very interesting. The first time I heard it and the second time I heard it. Oh, I tell again? No, I, <laughs> I think people can do a rewind on the <laughs> podcast. I think they can. Uh, but I think that's important. And, and that's, I think, why you were so interested in the origin of a cliche, because you know two of them, you know the origins. We know that we've misspoken about the cliches. So I think it's interesting. It is interesting. Where did they start? Who started them? How did it happen? Do we really understand the cliche? But moving, if we were to move forward and think about, you know, business and we think about what we say and it matters, it counts. We shouldn't take for granted our speech. We shouldn't take for granted of what we're trying to communicate. We should be as clear as we need to be 
so that people, we get the right results from people. What do you think, Jared? No, I think that's exactly right. A cliche, it's pulled out, you know, like the examples of the ones from Jesus, right? They're used to reinforce a principle. Now, those two principles that those are used to reinforce are historically inaccurate. So it goes to the point is that a cliche has power if it's used to reinforce a certain principle. So step number one is make sure that that principle is clear throughout your organization and your team. And then develop or utilize that cliche in the context of that principle so that others are reminded. It's a trigger to remind you of like, this is what we stand for. This is what we believe. This is why we do what we do. If those elements are missing, it just falls on deaf ears. So let's talk about what you just mentioned, a team, right? You have teams and organizations. How many times, Jared, have you heard this cliche? You ready? I'm ready. There's no I in team. Mm. Well, I, I'm trying to be very uh, PC in how I'm going. So that's poppycock. I mean, what do you mean there's no I in team? Every single team is like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Yeah. They're made individuals. Hopefully, there's diversity. Hopefully, there's uniqueness among individuals. And the thing is, is that it's about putting those eyes together. It's about putting those individuals together and how they fit together for the bigger picture. So maybe to stop saying there's no I in a team, maybe at some time, at one time, it was a great thing to say. But the truth is, if you're going to say, if you're going to stick to the teams, you know, each each work together to bring more and to achieve more, that's great. But we have to acknowledge that, that a team is made up of individuals. It's made up of that diversity and that we have to treat each people you know, actually this way. We need to honor each individual for who they are and what they bring. And I was thinking about what could we say instead, right? Because we're talking about don't say this and don't say that. And what I think would be great to do or to say instead, maybe more to do than instead say, is that we need to treat each individual as a respected member. We need to let them know that we want you to play up to your strength. It's okay to be that I. It's okay to bring who you are. And for everybody to work together so that we're better together. And so I think that's very important. So there's no I in a team. We need to stop saying that, I think. What do you think? I think that that is um, uh, absolutely right. And, you know, I just, sorry, this is my own little. <laughs> so there is actually I in team if you go to the Latin, <laughs> but it's a completely different, you know. So it's, yes, of course, there's no I in team. But again, it goes back to that principle of what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I mean, the, the sentiment is obviously that, hey, we work together. This isn't about any one person. But it's also it can also be uh, used to shut down real collaboration. So if somebody is, has a, a descending opinion about something that you've brought up, and I just turn around and say, well, hey, look, there's no I in team. Then really all I've done is just kind of chopped off any kind of real collaborative efforts going forward and basically said, there's no I in team. And that especially means your opinion because – you know, because it doesn't jive with mine. So, um, yeah. And so we really have to, we, I think this really always comes back to is speaking clearly, communicating effectively, say what it is that you mean, get rid of ambiguity where possible. Um, and then make sure that everybody knows that, look, if something's not clear, please bring it up so we can clarify. Cause, um, yeah. yeah. So that's what I think. I wholeheartedly, I agree. Um, the thing is, is that somebody made it popular, they liked the way it sounded, and so they used it, and somebody else caught on to it, and that a whole ripple effect. 
but I think we need to honor the individual and every team. I actually um, have this program. I'm scared to tell Jared because every single podcast that I introduce you know, him to one certain process. Point. I'm just going to, you know, certain points. We're like, hey, we're going to rebrand he everything. He goes ahead and changes. I've done it for three decades, but he comes along and says, no, I'm going to call it something else. So, hey, there's no one I the team. I think there's no I in team. Go ahead. What? <laughs> I'm collaborating with you right now. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. So I think in every, if you have a meeting, if you have a team, I'm a big encourager of that there should be different eyes in the room. There should be someone who's a follower. There should be somebody who's in charge, who says, this is what we need to do. There should be somebody that's a bystander. There should be, there, there needs to be different individuals in that meeting, in that decision, because if let's say, just an example, if some, if you have a leader that's very decisive and their their language, their power language is "let's go, let's do," if nobody in that room says "wait, slow down," then you don't have what you need to have in an organization where you look at things and you explore things and you actually talk about things. And so, I think you do need those I in a team. You do need those little individuals that can question that can poke, that can say, does that really work? Or you even need someone who can sum, sum everything up and say, I heard you say this. I heard you say that. Is this what we're really trying to do? You need those individuals in every single meeting and every single team. And sometimes I encourage my teams and my organiz the, the organizations that I work with to play off each other. If you find that nobody's challenging, be the person that challenges. Ask those questions that nobody else is asking. So I think it's very important to do that. Okay, so let me ask you this question here. So which you said there's multiple eyes in a team. So give those to me again. Let me write those down here. So you can change them? Oh, I've already got five eyes in a team. I'm just waiting. I just want to match them up for you. Go ahead. Come on. It's going to be good. Go ahead. What you, so the first was followers. What, what else are you saying? I want to get the very specific because everything you're saying, I totally agree with. Um, so there's a, there's a person who sets the action, right? Okay. They're the person with power. Then there's a follower. Then there's a bystander. And then there's a challenger, meaning someone sets an action. Someone puts it into action. Someone says, this is what I heard each one of you say. And then someone challenges what everybody said. I think that's a robust meeting. That's a robust conversation. This is something that I practice in organization and in teams all the time. And I teach them to constantly facilitate in meetings. Be, you don't always have to be the challenger. You don't always have to be the bystander. Decide what is missing in the conversation and become that person. Bring that to the conversation. And that's something that I do. Are you going to change the method? Oh, yeah. I'm about to blow your mind. Get ready. The method is fine. But, you know, if we say there's I's in teams, they should start with I. And so I've got five here, which match up nicely to what you're saying. You've got an instigator. You've got an interpreter. You have an integrator. You have an initiator. Right? So they could be the one who initiates the conversation. The instigator creates the action. Or they spark things going up. Uh, interpreter helps to make sense of this. But then you've also got an illustrator, somebody who has to draw the picture of like, well, here's the map. Here's where it is that we're going. This, any one of those could be reworked. But I'm pretty proud of myself that I just came up with that. You need an implementer. Who's going to put it in? Who's All right, gonna here we go. Implementer. See, look at that. We'll just take one letter and we can just go to town. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard you just heard uh, how Lolly and I start to create something in real time, completely unplanned. So, and we think it's amazing, but you know, beyond Maybe the two of us, it may not be. So we'll see. Changing it up. That's okay. That's right. Hey, I like this. Good. We're gonna have to work on that. Quadrant works in organizations, but now we're going. How many did we go to six? What's that? How many did we go to six individuals in a team? Oh, let's see. We've got we've got six there. Yeah, some can overlap, but we've got six. We're gonna we're gonna tighten this thing up. Maybe we'll do an entire show on it. Okay. We'll talk. You'll talk about your six quadrant. I'll talk about my four because my four come with language certain kind of language in order to get you to be the best I in that conversation. But that's for another yeah, time. Yeah, it's good. I'm excited. Go ahead. That brings us to another cliche. You ready for this one? I'm ready. And we know who actually is the author of this. So no offense, but it's work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate that. Sorry. Because what you're really saying is the job that you need to do should take less time. What you're really saying is that the effort that you're putting in isn't the right effort because then you should have done it, you know, smarter and you're just working so hard. Mm. Individuals, right? That's that's hard to take when you're putting in the right effort, but it's not going as fast as you need it to go. How many times, and are you guilty of this, work smarter, not harder? Oh, yeah. I know all the time. So there is a better approach. And so this is something to think about. As a leader... If you want somebody to accomplish something, then approach a task, right? Think about what you want them to do. Teach them how you want them to do it or guide them how you want them to do it. But don't leave it to this generalization of, you know, work smarter, not harder. What the hell does that mean when someone is putting in all the effort and is trying to do a great job? So that's one of those cliches that I think we need to stop saying. Yeah. Sorry. Just clarify what that means. Because I do believe in the in the idea of that working smarter and not harder. I am guilty of working harder and oftentimes not smarter. But then I had to define, well, if I'm working hard, the whole idea of the working smarter, I remember this from early on, was outsource the things you're not good at, right? And go all in on your strengths. So say that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, I mean, so if that's the intent, then great. But there's sometimes where people say, man, you, I used to, I mean, over the past three and a half years when I was rebuilding and developing the entire digital side of the business, a lot of the things that I was doing, I could have outsourced. I did in the beginning, but then it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, um, I'll take care of everything is it wasn't moving fast enough. And there's always pushback in the sense of, well, I think you should do it this way. And I thought, well, no, I really think I should do it this way. So I just did it. So I built everything out. And it was what a lot of people would say, you're working harder, not smarter. In my mind, I'm thinking, no, I get it. But um, I'm building something to scale and to eventually sell. I better know every single part of this business in its early iterations so that when I do hire people to take over these things, they have to show me that they know more about this than I do. That to me is being smarter. It's not just saying, oh, well, cool, I'm going to hire somebody to do this and then uh, and continue moving forward. So, yeah, it's all relative. There's another so cliche. So <laughs> you're putting an interesting point. Because I said a cliche, and you took it personally. It's about you should outsource. But in organizations, it might not be always about outsourcing. It could be the way they attempt a project, a task. It could be said in other forms that leaders are saying it that don't give them the results that they want. And it is very general. It means one thing to you, Jared, but it can mean something else to someone else that's listening. 
and it's not always about outsourcing. So say, as we've said now, I think like to a nauseum, say what you need to say, say it and be specific. And, and I think it's better when you let people know what you want by being very clear and direct. Definitely. Yeah. So it's, it's all relative. So it all comes back to the idea that it needs to be grounded and rooted down into something that's tangible. Is it the values of the organization? Is what your cliche or what you're saying, does it reflect those values in a way where people are able to repeat it, remember it, own it, believe it? Uh, you know, um, I, I think that's really, that's, that's the main thing is that we've gotten into such a habit of using language without understanding what exactly it means that, uh, you know, people completely forget what it is that they're talking about. And one of my favorites is innovation. Um, everybody loves to be like, oh, we're an innovative company. And my first response is usually, well, probably not. You know, I mean, let's really get down and say, how do you define innovation? And most people's ideas of innovation is really just this, well, we've added an extra camera on the back of the phone. It's not innovation. Well, we've increased the speed of this processing chip. That's innovation. No, it's, no, it's not. <laughs> You know, real innovation is where you change the game completely. Real innovation is where you disrupt yourself. So, so when you really understand that what real innovation is, is about changing the game and breaking things down and rebuilding them in a new way, that that is a pretty painful process. And you'll probably be alienated and you'll probably lose a lot of money in the beginning. And it might actually fail. And you know what? Then it may not be innovation. And you may have just taken a big risk trying to be innovative. So when you really start to weigh what it means to be innovative and really look at, hey, this is how it all, how it all breaks down, I would venture to guess that most organizations do not want to be innovative. Because it's just, you don't. If you really understand what it means, you probably don't want to be innovative. It reminds me of something after the financial crash in 2008. You know, early on, 2009, there was uh, these ads I would hear from, maybe it was 2010 or so. So it was a couple, couple years after but these ads from a financial advisory firm, and they were hiring, and it was one of these big banks that also had a financial arm, and they were talking about how they're, they're innovative products and services and yada, yada, yada. And I just laughed every time I heard it. I thought, first of all, that can't be innovation. Number one, if it's truly innovative in the financial industry, it's almost certainly illegal. So I know it's not innovative, <laughs> you know? And, but if you put innovative in front of it, then everybody thinks, Oh, cool. Yeah, so they're doing things differently. No, banks love regulation because it gives them the lines to color inside. I've talked to any banker or people that work in that institute. They're just like, yeah, look, we don't mind regulation. It just tells us how far we can go. So anyway, the innovation does not thrive in that environment. So it's the same idea. So can you think of a very famous cliche that goes with innovation? Oh. Give me a hint. It's a square. You ever hear this one? Think outside the box. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a big one, right? Mm -hmm. What the does it even mean? It's so vague that. It's and the truth is, are we? What are we really trying to tell people when we're talking about innovation? Think outside the box. Are we telling them? Um, don't. I don't even know what it means. Actually, I have no. Do you have any idea what people are meaning? What they mean when they say think outside? Out the, think outside the box? Yeah. So the general idea with thinking outside of the box means is to, 
is to present the idea that all of us have our own little box, our own way of looking at things, our own neat, nice, tidy explanation for how things operate, and also for the kind of actions that we take, the way that we approach decisions. It's based on this idea that humans are, we are creatures of habit, right? That's just, we are. So your box is really your habitat. It's the habits you create, it's what you do. So to think outside of that means to uh, really just don't go with your automatic immediate response start looking at things very differently think in a different way think outside of yourself essentially is what that means well that makes more sense to me about what you're saying like think differently than you normally would think so wouldn't it be best to say or best to encourage innovation by grounding it in something that is sound not something that could be ambiguous wouldn't it be great to communicate some, let's say, business principles or some goals that you want to achieve and maybe say to individuals that the solutions might be in your thinking, but something that you haven't thought of before. And I think it's best um, if we're going to say, give some suggestions of what to say instead, maybe I think as leaders to clearly define what the problem is, right? And set some principles and some values like you discussed earlier to that and let that guide to the solution to me that makes more sense and what i'm trying what you're trying to get at because or to say there's a problem look at that look at that problem in a different way look at it in a different angle than you normally would look at it and that to me is more direct in the communication so i think that if we're trying to encourage innovation Thinking outside the box is a great cliche, but wouldn't it be great if we can clarify it in a way that every single person knows what we want to say? Think differently than you normally would. Yeah, yeah. But even that would still need some unpacking, right? I mean, yeah. so, but, but again, it just reinforces this idea that don't rush past the communication. Make sure everybody's clear. Make sure everybody understands what it is that your goal is. There's this principle, and I probably mentioned it in this podcast before, but there's this great principle. Um, so I grew up in the Army. My dad was 26 years military, moved around my whole life. That was my family from the age of two all the way through high school. Uh, that's all I ever knew. And dad would, there are certain uh, things that dad would, would bring back from his, um, his meetings uh, with the commanders, with these different folks. And he, he reminded me of something he had talked about a long time ago. And that is this principle in the military in these meetings called bluff bottom line up front. I love it. So leaders need to do a lot more bluffing. They need to be very specific. Here's my, here's the point. Here's the thing that I'm after. Here's the, the summation of everything I'm about to talk to you about right here. Are there any questions? Great. Now I can start to unpack how I got to this conclusion, how I got to the bottom line here. This, uh, that is one of the things that, um, for my communication style is always tell me what you want up front. Let's just get to it. And then I will ask you questions and you only tell me what it is that I need to know. Just give me the, give me the facts so that we can get to work. I just get worn out when it's just like, look, there's this build and build and build and build and build. And then finally it's like, oh, that's the bottom line. Boy, we could have saved a couple hours on that. <laughs> you know? So I think this goes to the point of, you know, it's, it kind of kicks back to this. Don't rush the communication, but also the best way to make sure that the communication is, uh, is clear is that you start with the bottom line up front, right? And when I say don't rush the communication, I don't mean have this long, drawn-out conversation for no apparent reason. 
Start with the bottom line up front. Start with the end in mind. Put that thing right up front. Find out where there is some uh, where things aren't clear, and then move forward. If you do that, it'll probably go a lot faster than it would if you just throw out a few cliches or make sure or think that everybody understands what it is that you're after, and uh, and then you just waste a lot of time and energy. So, yeah. Absolutely. We have a coaching call I had this morning. I asked, um, we, we have this problem we're trying to solve. And I said, let's work backwards. What do you want to achieve at the end? And wasn't clear. I said, if you don't know what you want to achieve, how are we supposed to communicate? How are we supposed to even start the conversation? Because I never thought about that. And I said, okay, again, what do you want to achieve? And once he was able to identify that, we got very, very clear in four bulletin points exactly what he needed to say to his team today in his leadership meeting that would get him the results that he wants. And he said, but that was very interesting. I thought I knew what I wanted to achieve. And only when you asked me, did I realize I didn't know. And I said, when you can identify what you want to achieve, you can have the right ask. You can take the right action. You know how to proceed because you know where you want to end up. So I think that's also very important to think about in your communication. You know, this brings us back to a cliche we were talking about for a little bit in the beginning, and that was the work harder, not or work smarter, not harder. Uh, I think that part of the problem, because a lot of folks that I've worked with communicating what it is they want, what they expect, what are the specific things they need and when they need them by, I think a lot of this could also be tied into that that uh, permeation, if you will, in the business world of this idea of working smarter, not harder. I think a lot of that's translated into, hey, don't, you know, un- unintentionally, don't spend the time to really make sure you know what it is that you want and clearly communicate it, right? It's instead, it's look, hey, we, you know, if I got to work smarter means I just need to go ahead and put this thing out there, get other people to start, you know, doing it and whatever. It almost encourages a sense of speed over efficiency. And a lot of times people say, well, speed and efficiency should go hand in hand. You're right. But if it's if you're efficient or if you are focused on speed, you may be running or driving 90 miles an hour to an unknown destination. And that's not that's not very good. So it wouldn't be considered efficient. It's efficiently bad in that regard, sure. But I think that uh, this this other cliche, these ideas, it just shows you how powerful these narratives around these cliches can lead to bad decisions or, uh, in this case, maybe just not taking the time. Because your client is certainly not the only one that has dealt with that. I've had several where I've had to actually craft and create email templates for them. It's nuts as it sounds. It's like the chief of staff of the national sales director for a large publicly traded company. And it's like, look... You, you know, here, you're CCing too many people. Here's how, here, follow this formula. I will create this for you. Send this out and your your email inbox will be cut in half, guaranteed. It's just basic, simple communication stuff. You know, so, yeah. Boy, we could, we could probably go on and on about those. Again, why I could never work in a corporate environment. I just have such a low tolerance. <laughs> I think we should have Jared give money into a little charity box every time he says, I don't want to work work for corporate America or I don't work for corporate America. Um, My best clients are all the, all my best clients really, the vast majority of them, there's a handful that are not, are senior level executives in large publicly traded companies, which is nuts because I've never, like, again, they don't hire me to be better corporate citizens. It's working on many, many other things like what we're dealing with here today, but it's, you know, yeah. So, (laughs) but that's just how I'm hardwired. 
So I want to go back to what you were saying because I was thinking of a cliche while you were speaking. Slow down to go faster, right? When I was saying to my client, where do you want to end up? What I was actually saying to him, let's define it, right? I could have used a cliche, but I didn't this morning, thank God. But that's something that most people would have said, let's slow down to go faster to get you where you need to get to. Mm -hmm. So again, I try not to talk in cliches. I find people that their first, when their first language is not English or the spoken language, their cliche dictionary or list is shorter than most that if their their native language is English, there's a lot of cliches. Yeah. I didn't speaking English, so for me, I don't have that many cliches. It's some I have some that I've picked up. Um, you want to hear a good one? This sure. is a good one. I've heard the, this I heard last week, and it made my blood boil. Um, I was I was on a call, a Zoom call, and it said, "Don't bring me a problem without a solution." And I wanted to scream. I was in my head like, "Oh, there were fireworks going off." Because this is what I was thinking: if somebody actually has the courage to bring a problem to the meeting, that means they thought about it before. If they had a solution, they would have brought the solution. But the oh, Jared is shaking his head I back and disagree, forth. Disagree, but go ahead. I thought, I disagree with many things you say, but I never do. <laughs> I think that he was, there are times when people can solve problems, but when a person comes to you and actually says, I have a problem, I need your help, those couple of words, I need your help, is a tell that it's time that we need to put on our thinking caps and help this individual. We have very, very smart individuals that work for us. Most of the time, they're figuring things out and they're doing a great job. But I think that we need to encourage individuals to bring their problems, to discuss them, to discuss them together, and not to feel that they can't bring something up. When someone says, this is the code, I need your help, it's not easy to ask for help. I've written articles and articles about how it's so hard for people to ask for help. So if you're asking for help, I think then we need to show up for that individual. Now you can go ahead and rip this to shreds, but <laughs> I think it's important that we don't have this banner that says, don't bring me you know, all your problems without a solution. Go for it, Jared. So I think I agree with the sentiment for sure. 100% agree with that. And it goes back to the, this general principle, cliches are relative. So we have to be really specific. So the the way that I understand the don't bring me a problem without a solution, it's a real simple way to say, hey, don't come to me with a problem unless you've already thought about a few ways that we can solve this. I'm not saying you have to have the end all result. Because so for myself and then a lot of my clients who are also leaders, like they, they're not wanting to sit down and have a heart to heart and help you think out loud. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just, you know. Uh, if you're running, and I could be wrong, but I mean, if you're running an organization and somebody comes to you that's not necessarily, you know, that it could be a person on the team says, hey, look, here's a problem, and they're just presenting a problem to you. Now, all of a sudden, as a leader, especially if they're a leader who is action-oriented, you're like, you've given me one other thing I've got to solve in the midst of everything else. Like, I just don't have the energy. I don't have the bandwidth to try and tackle that. And so, yeah, I mean that you're saying was that we have we need to have a culture in every organization you're talking about a leader is too busy to think through something no no, 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 no. that what i'm saying is this is that 
if the leader's done their job right, they've empowered their people to make decisions. They've, you know, so when they say this thing, like, don't come to me with a problem without a solution, they're saying, I want to know what you think. Come to me and I, like, just tell me what it is that I need to know. Like, do you, did this problem just arrive and you have not taken the time to actually think through how to solve it and you're bringing it straight to me? Because that's essentially what and where this sentiment comes from. Or is it, hey, I've taken the time, which is what you said. Like, hey, look, if they've taken the time to do all that, of course. And then if you tell them, oh, you need to have a solution, well, then you're just being a dick. You know? But if you actually say, no, look, don't come to me when the problem arises. Come to me and say, look, I've tried to solve this. I've got three different ways that I think we can make this happen. But what I want is your input on this because this is your organization. If somebody comes to you like that, then that's perfect. Absolutely. Because then it shows that you've already thought through it. But if they just come like, hey, i got a problem. It's like, well, have you thought about it? Well, what would you do? Well, I don't know. I haven't gotten that for you. That's the kind of crap that that sentiment, I think, is really rooted in. So we're not talking about someone who doesn't think. We're talking about, we. hopefully, you hire A-teams, you hire individuals that are A-players. We're sitting in a room, and someone says, don't bring me your problems. That's a problem that for me. Problem. Now, that's a different thing. Don't bring me your problems is very different. That's or don't bring me problems without a solution. Let's go to that cliche. Let's stick to that one. Yeah. I think we need to have a culture where people can talk freely about anything that they need to talk about. Sometimes, sometimes things, um, we're, so, we're in something so deep that we don't see the simplest things, right? We tend, as human beings, sometimes we complicate things. I see this all the time. Uh, my clients bring me things. They go, oh my God, it's so complicated. But the truth is, as an outsider looking in, to me, it's very simple sometimes. And I'll just ask one or two questions. They go, oh yeah, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay. That's okay if someone says, I, you know, I have a problem. I haven't thought of the solution. For someone to ask the right question to get them to that solution, again, empowerment, great leadership. So I'm a big advocate of that. I just don't like it that we have to do things all the time on our own. I know that I used to have a relationship where an individual, when I would say something, oh, I, I don't know what that means, or I don't know how to figure that out, they go, oh, you're so smart. You can do it. Just think harder. If I'm already asking, that means I would like some help. And it's taught me to be very independent, but it's also taught me not to ask for help. I think it's very important that we need to be a little bit of both. We need to ask, we need to do. We need to have the combination of both. Yeah, I think the bottom line is that if you're if you're an effective leader, you've created an environment where people feel safe to, to bring concerns to you, absolutely. And if you're an effective leader, you're somebody who has encouraged and empowered your people to make decisions on their own, knowing that, again, going back to this, it's those decisions have a foundation that you're making them from, which is the values, the culture of the organization. If it has been clearly communicated, then your team should be able to make decisions on their own. But if they have a genuine problem and they bring it to you, if you are an effective leader, then you know if they're bringing it to you, then they have exhausted their resources and they cannot figure out like how to move it to the next step, then obviously that is very, very important. Uh, but you know one thing, and I, I had a call with um, uh, with a lady. This is a couple months ago. She runs a, a large association, and she the, all the people she's dealing. With, so she's a, the CEO, and and the board is entirely made up of men. 
And, uh, and so I explained, so she goes, I explained this to her and I'm gonna share this here in a second. And she said, this has changed so many things for her about how she communicates to this board of directors. Cause she would get a lot of pushback on various things. And she is a very strong a type, you know, I mean, she is a go getter. She has done amazing things with this association, but the board are still a bunch of cavemen like most of us men. So I explained, I said, you know, it's, Men are very action-oriented. Not all, I'm speaking in general here, but men, A-type leaders, whatnot, they're very action-oriented. You know, women are the same way too, but, I, you know, but men, we're a little more simplistic in our minds. So I said, here's the, way to, here's the thing you have to understand is that our brains still operate the same way they did 50,000 years ago in a cave. So if my wife, for example, comes to me with a problem without saying, hey, here's, here's what I'm thinking we should do about it, immediately I'm looking for the tiger outside of the cave. Even if it's something like we need gas or, or we need – so I'm always forcing like, look, we need to be really, really specific here. So understand this. If you're dealing with a strong A-type leader, a man especially, if you bring a problem or you bring something to the table or whatever it might be, our natural instinct is as protectors. If you know, you're know you running an organization, you're protecting an organization. If it's family, you're looking for the tiger outside of the cave. So always consider that it's like, oh, my husband or my boss or my, you know, partner or my, you know, the people or my board of directors or, you know, or my team members who report to me, these are cavemen. And I should try to make it really, really simple. And Lolly's holding up the leadership gap here. So I'm holding up the leadership gap because you're describing chapter seven in my book. Oh, I have oh. made it to chapter seven completely unplanned. Okay. You made it to chapter seven. No, I have Think not. So now we have. So I want to talk a little bit about that to just, I never said men are cavemen. That was Jared. Totally. What I do want to explain is that in my book, The Leadership Gap, I talk about the polarity of character that exists within all of us, men and women. I don't think there's a differentiation between the two. There is an individual that lives within us is that when someone comes to us with a problem, the first thing we want to do is to fix it, right? We want to jump and fix it. But what happens is, is when an individual, especially a spouse, a partner, a leader, a manager, a CEO, a boss, right away jumps in and says, I'm going to fix it. This is the way you should do it. What people don't realize, the psychology that happens is that people think to themselves, what an arrogant person. <laughs> I ask them for that. I didn't say the, the code of, remember I talked about the code? The code was, I didn't ask them for help. All I said was, there is this problem that's going on. And immediately, before I can even finish, this person is telling me how to do it, what to do, when to do it. And they're, this is what I do. This is what I would do. We don't really want to hear that unless we ask for those magic mm -hmm. directions. What can I do? In my book, I talk about what really encourages development and growth and expansion is for us to become navigators. The navigator is very good at someone, a spouse, a partner, a team member comes to you and says, I have a problem. And you say, okay, this is your problem. So what have you tried? What have you thought of? What did work? What didn't work? Navigate through the problem because most likely, 99% of that time, the individual that came with the problem will say, you know something? I just thought of something. I haven't tried this. I'm going to try it. I think it's going to work. That's the magic of knowing the persona that you need to be when someone comes to you. But 
as I said earlier, there is that code. If someone says, please, if your spouse comes to you and says, please, honey, can you help me? That's when you can jump in and be the person that gives all those ideas. But most of the time, they're not saying those magic words. That's why I said the cliche, really, I don't like it. Because when you're coming already and saying, I need help, that's when you need to show up and help. But if not, then become the navigator. Chapter 7, It's a. it has saved marriages, it has saved teams, and it will do you great, great, um, it will work great if you're a leader, a boss, a manager, or a partner, or a spouse. Yeah. No, and I think that's really important. The words are really important. Um, and I'm glad you bring that up about the I need help being the key. So years ago, I because the way I'm hardwired, somebody would bring a problem and I would immediately try to jump in. I know you're this way too, Lolly. It was our natural inclination. We've got the energy to do it. It's like, great, give me a problem. I'm going to go solve it. That's our adrenaline rush. And so if somebody brings a problem to me or mentions something, my first question now is, it's like, oh, man, uh, did you want my thoughts on that? If not, that's totally fine. But if you do, I could tell you what I would do, uh, but that's up to you. So I've become much more cognizant over the years of saying, hey, not everybody wants to hear what it is that I would do. So I'm always asking and kind of I make the assumption up front now that um, that what I say is going to need some clarification or that there needs to be very de- because I demand like be specific, you know, be very specific. So I want to create the situation where they have the opportunity to be very specific. Did you want my advice on that? No, not really. Okay, cool. Well, if you ever need anything, let me know, right? Uh, you know, well, so it's just like I don't walk up to somebody and say, hey, can I give you some feedback on that? Which, number one, I know we've had an episode about feedback. It's like, yeah. I had people say, hey, do you mind if I give you some feedback? I'm like, yeah, I do because I didn't ask for it. I don't want your feedback. Go away, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's not a protective thing. It's just like I don't have time for this because that feedback you want to give me is about you, not me. Beat it, you know? <laughs> So, so anyway, but just to re- reinforce what you said, and I think this is a really good way because we are coming up in the hour here, is have those that that key of like if somebody asks for help, then give it. You know, don't push that away. That is a powerful thing for sure. Yeah. Right. If somebody is vulnerable and says, "I have a problem," have that open heart and that open mind and the open will to help because. It, I'm sure it wasn't easy for somebody to approach you because they're supposed to be the smartest in the room. They're supposed to have all the answers. But if they're coming for help, which is not very often, people don't usually come with problems because they know they have solutions. So this is a good way to end this whole thing about cliches because we've talked a lot about cliches. What is your takeaway about our conversation today? Yeah, I think you know my big takeaway for the, from the conversation today is that cliches in and of themselves are not bad as long as, as they are rooted in something that has genuine meaning. And that meaning is going to be relative to your organization. So don't just pull the cliche from the latest book or, you know, uh, or whatever has been said because it's been said over and over again. It doesn't mean anything if it cannot be connected to the values and the culture of your organization. Then it's just a cliche. Otherwise, it's a reminder of who you are and it's something that the organization can use to, uh, to, to pull inspiration from to get the job done. So I'm going to say something completely different. I think we should get rid of cliches. And I think that we should say what we want to say and say it from the heart. I think it has more meaning. Be direct. If you want people to come with you with problems, say it. If you think failure should happen, you should say it. If all these things are important to be direct and say what you mean and mean what you say. So I'm a big advocate for let's get rid of the cliches. 
Yeah, we might have to have a follow-up on this one, talking about how do we redefine cliches and maybe talk about rituals. So, I love rituals. Uh, I have many of them in my life, but I think the cliches, I wouldn't mind if they we never had them or we don't use them. <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to end. So now we've got a new show topic that we have to explore. Rituals. Rituals. Well, awesome, life. Thank you for another great conversation. Thanks, Jared. This was amazing. Thank you for listening to In the Hour podcast with Lolly Daskal and myself, Jared Nichols. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, I strongly encourage you to do that. And of course, if you know someone, friend, family, colleague who could benefit from this episode or from being a subscriber themselves, please pass this along. Also, leave your comments, your questions. We want to hear from you. We want to know what's on your mind and what you're thinking about in this time of change and, and what you want to hear more about. As always, thanks again for listening, and we look forward to being with you next week.